Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Heineken. Figuring out how to beat the heat for Labor Day weekend this weekend? I know I am. Uh, it's going to be triple digits in the Los Angeles area. And I plan on doing this. Finding the most air-conditioned place I possibly can in my house. Turning on the boys. And alternatively, watching NBA basketball, NBA playoff basketball. And when the time is right, I'm going to enjoy a cold, cold, cold Heineken. Heineken Original Lager is made with natural ingredients with pure malt and their famous A-yeast, which makes Heineken an all-season, all-the-time kind of beer. Pick up a pack or have it delivered this Labor Day weekend and drink responsibly. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the AFI Conservatory. As the number one film school in America, the AFI Conservatory is where artists become master filmmakers. Join the ranks of such groundbreaking alumni as David Lynch, Patty Jenkins, Carl Franklin, Rachel Morrison, and so many more. Apply now at afi.edu. That's afi.edu. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, as always, it's Andy Greenwald. Got me skittery. Got me jumpy. I got a, Thursday. a couple of bones to pick with you today. <laughs> okay. Just one. Just right. one. And right. it is it is a poultry bone, Greenwald. Today on The Watch, we're going to oh. be talking a little bit about the new Benioff and Weiss project, Three Body Problem, coming on Netflix at some point. Someday. Someday. We'll talk a little bit about the next moves for Benioff and Weiss. We're going to talk about two shows about one of the great loves of my life. And I'm not, and can you guess what it is? That's right. Um, is Foot it the three-body problem? No, <laughs> it's soccer. We're going to talk about Ted Lasso, and I am going to talk about All or Nothing. I'm going to make Andy listen to me talk about it. Is it fair to say that the three-body problem sounds like something that like Johan Cruyff figured out? You know what I mean? That like wasn't this something like Where did the, you the, where did you just dig out a Johan Cruyff reference? Here's the thing. I'm a gambler. I'm a gambler in the open field. I will I will make the reference uh-huh. about the brilliant game and the Dutch, but um the brilliant orange. Yeah, the brilliant orange. All right. We also we should talk about some breaking news too from productions trying to get into production like what we just heard about uh yeah. batman i've also yeah. got a fire take for you about streaming. you got a great services. take and then we're going to talk a little bit about the boys because season two is dropping to tonight night basically at monday uh on, on midnight on amazon and this is a show that i'm really excited to talk to let's save all our boys chat for later yeah okay real boys, real boys quick. talking boys our new podcast it's about two two o'clock pst out here in los angeles mm-hmm. and um yeah. once we're done with this podcast and I've concluded my work duties for the day. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I, to be sure making to a practice chicken. Because okay. uh, I'm alone when it comes to my culinary pursuits, apparently. You know, I've oh. gotten some help from some of my friends. Some of my friends have been helpful. Like when I texted my buddy, my good friend, Zach Barron, and I asked, is it weird that there are ants in my grill? He, he was like, yes, it is. And I took care of it, you know. What happened when you sent the same text to me at likely the same moment? You guys were both pretty much like, that's on you. Yeah. But I feel like you talked a really big game yeah. about how you were going to you were gonna really be my Tom Colicchio. You okay, were going to be my mentor. When it came to marinades, when it came mm-hmm. to proper mm-hmm. techniques. Yeah. And now you got me out here 
And yeah. I got like a bottle of KC Masterpiece that I'm about to douse no, on a boneless no. chicken breast. Well, no, boneless well, chicken breast. This is what happens when you when you <laughs> when you leave people alone in the world. Listen, in the spirit of Cobra Kai being released onto Netflix, I thought that we could Miyagi it. Do you know what I mean? I what does thought that, mean? that by but basically leaving you alone to feel out your new grill. Well, that's what to, I had to do. To notice the ant invasion and to handle it. Like, this is kind of like when Daniel LaRusso washed Mr. Miyagi's house and cars. Because then, without realizing it, you're becoming comfortable, you're becoming familiar, you're recognizing that, you know, in pest invasions of any kind, bad. I can't teach you that. You need to learn that yourself. Now, you begin to be ready. And then I can tell you about, you know, the sort of the, the, the marinade mixology that dominates yeah. my non-podcasting life. And now it just dominates my life. How, you know, I like to have something from, uh, you, need, you need something acidic. You need something sweet, right? Uh-huh. You can go in various uh, why do, this is directions. Why are you Patreoning your marinade? Why don't you just tell me what it is? Why are you giving me like the flavor profile? Well, because I profile? change it every time. You know, oh, when, you're an in, when you're an intuitive chef like me, Chris... You know what I mean? It's like where where the day takes me. So there's too much I, information I, should, out should there. Should I tell you to go buy some shirokoji, which is the the magic ingredient for the last year of my cooking? Uh huh. I could tell you that. I could tell you that. But are you telling me but, that? But then when you shh, Daniel son. But then once you have that, could you put in some Dijon mustard? Could you put in some maple syrup or honey? Yeah. Yeah, do you, you could. Would you do it agave as like a maple syrup substitute? I never have, but you could. Mm. You could. Sweet thing, you, know, you get that caramelization from the sugars in the marinade. Look, I can't tell what's m- least interesting to people right now. Is it the friction between two old friends? The, are, are, are your speakers crackling right now with the tension? I don't think we've had a divide like this since we disagreed. What's the last time we disagreed about a show that we talked about? Um... I feel like you didn't like something. Well, we're we're about to. I think we're about to. Yeah, we're about to. So, um, th- so that do they care about the cooking takes? I mean, I don't know. So, look, let's table this for now. I'm just trying if, to become if, more self reliant. We don't know what's going to happen in this in this world as we go move forward. And I, you know, I don't want to be so overly reliant on takeout. So I'm trying to make be a better person. And I, I'm out I here. That. I got these baked potatoes on indirect heat. And it, after 90 minutes, they are still not done. Like, what's happening over here? By indirect heat, are they near the grill? Or are you just putting them like... <laughs> Chris, what I love about this... and what I They're hope still in the fridge. <laughs> exactly. That's indirect. What I love about this is that you are somehow looking to me mm. as if I can get you through that an episode of that show, Naked and Afraid, when the first thing I said to you to make a marinade was Shiro Koji, an obscure Japanese fermented product. The fact that I rely on that for my weeknight chicken means I'm the first one to the guillotine. You know what I mean? Right. Like, right. this is right. not a path towards self-reliance. Okay. We're, 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 we all need escape routes. It's been a long week. I've been trying a lot of different things. I just never got, I never got the chicken out of the opaque zone last you, time you, I tried. You, you don't want, skinless boneless is a bad combination for the grill. Why? Breasts are not very, white meat is not very fatty. So it's right. going to dry out really fast. The line between like something juicy and I, good. And I would take dry. Is dry. Really I just fast. need it. I just need it cooked. You know what I mean? I need it not clear. You had <laughs> so you went from wet chicken to clear chicken, like translucent. 
I might I might just I might just order you some kismet tonight. I, I feel like I feel like I need a podcast partner not racked by the salmonella shakes. I'm concerned. Is that, is that what happens in salmonella? You just get you just get a little bit of a tremor. You just get a little bit of a tremor. Yeah, that's that weird. Sushi. I can't throw a slider anymore. I got salmonella. I can't get the chicken, grip rate. That chicken sushi last night was a bad idea. Should we start um, talking about pop culture? Yeah, but I'll say people listening know that we are um, we put out the bat signal for um, mailbag questions for mm. a mailbag show we're going to record tomorrow and run on Monday. If mm. people really want marinade talk, let us know. We'll do it in the mailbag. But otherwise, Andy, I want marinade talk. Why doesn't what I want matter? Kaya, can you jump in here? We can do this offline. You know what I mean? I'm available. Assuming you're not. You don't have Kai, don't you think that if I was like, I'm taking this big leap into cooking and for years, literally years, Andy has been like, oh, I got this marinade. It's going to be a lifesaver. It's going to change the way you think about food. It's so flexible. It's so easy to put together. And when I got the grill, he was like, oh, I'm about to just, I'm about to bless you with the ancient scrolls of marinade. And I, I never got drop it. the bag. And then, yeah, you, you, you're, you're like, you, you're a bag withholder is what you are. Well, I dropped the ball is what I dropped. And then I, I asked you. you just the other day and you breeze right by it and you just send me things about Amazon developing Sony comic book characters and I'm just like, I'm out here <laughs> eating wet, clear chicken. When are Can you going to help truth? me? Can I tell you the truth? It's a lonely time for everyone. And uh-huh. uh, to some level, I feel like if I teach Chris how to play ball by himself, we can't play catch anymore. There's an element of that where I was like, the longer we have to share this. You won't be needed for the Padma pod because she and I will have so much culinary stuff to talk about. I have concerns about that. (laughs) You know, I have concerns about that. So I feel like, I feel like Kaya, you know us pretty well at this point. Don't you think that Andy's playing hardball right here? Uh, Andy, I think you just need to give Chris the marinade recipe because it sounds like he's really struggling. But there's no, there's no recipe, but okay. I'll give you some guidelines. Thank you. Or maybe just like a socially distanced, like tutorial. Oh, that would be fun. You could come over <laughs> and I could show you, I could show you the different part of the yard that I put the potatoes. I, all I, I always wanted to be in one of your stupid plays. All, uh, um, all right, guys. Sorry. Sorry for that divergence. You know, we were just, we were just two dudes chatting about stuff, but we can chat guys, about, you can start recording now. Let's talk about um, the three body problem. Uh, or three body problem. It's not the. Uh, it's going to be the latest and greatest. Uh, hopefully, full start rather than a false start from David Betty off and DB Weiss. Now, you can read a piece on the Ringer that Zach Cram wrote about this proposed adaptation, which is coming. It's about. Um, it's a sci-fi epic written by a Chinese writer named Lu Xin, and it is actually called. Remembrance of Earth's past. If it sounds like I am sort of stalling as I go through this, it's because I'm largely, I would say, 99% unfamiliar with this. But what I did respond to is the response of people, which was mixed between, oh shit, like Mm -hmm. this is going to be amazing, and oh shit, can these guys pull it off? You, Andy, are do are you have any more familiarity with this with this material than I do? Absolutely not. To the degree where I, I, I learned the news of this, like everyone else did um, the other day, and I called up our local wonderful bookstore, Skylight, that's a free ad, and ordered a copy because it sounded fascinating and I wanted to know more about it. Mm-hmm. It. What's now, interesting about... Yeah, go ahead. 
No, you do because you, I was going to say, what do you? What's interesting about this? What so I think interesting? I'd say. love to share. Um, yeah. I, honestly, I think everything about this story is fascinating. Hmm. Let's start from the top. David Benioff and Dan Weiss are responsible for the most successful TV show of the last decade in Game of yes. Thrones. Yeah. Their next move after finishing Game of Thrones uh, was to sign a reportedly nine-figure deal with Netflix. As part of that, they gave up or ran screaming away from previously announced development, like the extremely ill-fated show Confederate that is mm-hmm. now dead at HBO, and their own rumored-to-be Knights of the Old Republic Star Wars trilogy, which is dead at Disney mm-hmm. to work. So, Well, at least they're the, not doing that. They, they made yes, they're, those yeah. projects, who knows? That's correct. But in terms of their own development. One of the questions that arose when they went to Netflix was, is this, I mean, we start, now we talk about these mega deals the way we talked about mega deals for like baseball players when someone would do, you know, like Albert the, Pujols would, yeah, would yeah. basically the break one, one be a Hall of Fame player. over 15 or whatever it is, yeah. And it would be a Hall of Fame player when he was underpaid. And then as soon as he sort of peaked, would sign a, you know, basically almost like back pay with another team who would get his declining years. And so the question, and it's a valid question, is how can you sign guys assuming they can do it again, Right. And it's particularly noteworthy in the case of Benioff and Weiss, because when we say do it again, it, it's the specifics of what it was. It's not that they, and they are, you know, perfectly creative people um, on their own, but Game of Thrones was not their IP or their idea. What they were particularly skilled at, and we can get into this, you know, in more detail, and we certainly did over years of covering Thrones, is they took something that was wildly popular in book form and they made it the biggest thing in the world. And so mm-hmm. the very clear question is, how many more things are there out there for them to do that with? Like, what IP is left? I mean, we joke about saying IP a lot, but that's all anybody says here in Hollywood. That's all anybody's gobbling up during a pandemic. And, you know, the the most obscure things from our childhood are now being absolutely reborn and, and whatever. So what did they, what did, where can they go with it? Okay. They went outside of this country to a big degree. And mm-hmm. it's very interesting, you know, at a moment where geopolitically and culturally this there's an ascendant China and we've gone from movies like the Transformers movies, you know, getting some money from a Chinese company and and basically marketing parts of themselves sure. to that country's rabid film audiences to now something that is wholly Chinese. And in reading about it, we learned that the, the that the Chinese government basically in the 90s was like, we are lagging in the science fiction area. And they put money and grants towards bettering their science fiction output, which was, that sounds was, pretty cool. That in gymnastics. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So this is like the crown jewel of that program. It's delicate, to say the least, mm-hmm. for these guys to be the ones to adapt it. The idea seems incredible and exciting. It also seems unfilmable in a lot of ways. And it's also worth noting that they are not the only people involved in it. Um, a writer produ- producer named Alexander Wu, who's worked on True Blood and other programs, was announced as a executive producer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't know, but there's so much to speculate about. Yeah, let me jump in a couple of places here. You mentioned that Game of Thrones is one of the is the most popular show of the decade. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons the key to its popularity, it was already a beloved series among its fans, its hardcore fans. And I think that 
had it had they done a incredibly faithful page, page by page even continuous like even if it was still running even if they were actually waiting for george or they had spent years in the nooks and crannies of the story that maybe they breezed past i think that the reason why that show was so popular was because it could appeal to people like jason and mallory and it could appeal to people like my mom mm-hmm. well my mom's a bad example because she's read the books a lot of times but they <laughs> you could appeal to people who had no frame of reference for what they were watching and were just enjoying it as a story that was on their screen once every Sunday and that they could then talk about the next day. It could also appeal to people who had dedicated a huge amount of their brain space to thinking about obsessing over and loving the world that was built and the characters who inhabited it. So that's like a really significant accomplishment to be able to make something that appeals to both diehards and casual fans. I mean, that's that's really the dream. And then since then, I think that they've maybe tried to thread the needle on a couple of those things. I probably now in retrospect would say that it was a smart idea for them to walk away from Star Wars because I would imagine, it, whatever the sundry details, that they just didn't feel like they could make the Star Wars movie or movies that they wanted to make. And rather than make Star Wars stuff that they were unhappy with, they were just like, we'll just pass. I don't think we want that hanging around our necks that we... We were the guys who did this to the end of Game of Thrones, and then we had a negative Star Wars experience. But the fascinating thing about Three Body Problem, from what I have read about it in the in the last day or so, is just how hard sci-fi it is, yeah. and how it is largely a novel or novels about ideas and really hard science, like protons I, being turned into. Go ahead. Can I read this? I mean, this is this is just reading Wikipedia now. That's what we're reduced to, but. The series portrays an alternate history where, in the first book, the Earth is awaiting an invasion from the closest star system, which in this universe consists of three solar-type stars orbiting each other in an unstable three-body problem, with a single Earth-like planet unhappily being passed among them and suffering extremes of heat and cold, as well as the repeated destruction of its intelligent civilizations. That's book one. Mm. That sounds super heavy. And as you said, yeah, it gets... It's... Sounds like it's a lot more science than fiction in places. Yeah, and in, in Cram's piece, Zach was talking about how he had had a conversation with another Ringer staffer where they were like actually hard-pressed to remember the name of the person mm. who's basically the protagonist. So this is going to be an epic, you know, this, this might be a fascinating television show, but at least as of now, lacks the Littlefinger, Jamie Lannister, Tywin Lannister kind of character at least so far as we, as I know. Well, let me give you a quick best case and worst case scenario. Here. Sure. Best case here is these guys who are very smart in a lot of ways. Oh, we should also mention Ryan Johnson's involved in this too as an executive producer. Also smart and promising. Uh-huh. But that, um, do you think they met at the bar outside of Disney when they were both told their services won't be welcome anymore? <laughs> is there some, is it like goofy saloon? Wait, or is Ryan not doing his, his Star Wars no, stuff I don't, anymore? I don't know if he's is or he isn't. I just feel like it's been a tortured path yeah. for whatever is coming next. Did you read the he Boyega may- interview? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Seems like that's a, that's a, that whole thing is a spicy meatball over there. Yeah. The Star Wars saga. Let's focus just for this. I, I think that Benioff and Weiss have a pretty good read of what their skill set is, what their value is in the marketplace, and what people want and hope to get from them. And I think... All you know, all the preamble I gave it, reading the room and being like, 
what we can do, what we believe we can do, and we have the receipts to prove it as well as the residuals, is take something dense, complicated, and unfilmable, and as you said, make it globally palatable entertainment in a way that entertainment has to be this decade where it should be both broad but also narrow enough for a million Reddit threads, right? So that kind of thinking, that that's this seems ripe for that. If mm-hmm. it's extremely dense sci-fi, their job will be to do the thing that they kind of had to do with Game of Thrones, which is to simplify or to Hollywoodize or whatever, or to f- build the characters within it, right? I mean, we all the years we were talking to Jason and Mal about Game of Thrones, we would often say that our favorite scenes were um, Jamie Pe- and Tyrion talking. People in rooms right? talking. Yeah. And, and that wasn't necessarily, those weren't the scenes that were taken from the books. The ideas and the characters were, but those specific scenes weren't. And so mm-hmm. that's something that they apparently uh, excel at. And that makes me pretty interested. The worst case scenario here is a little bit like that movie, The Great Wall, a few years ago, where there was like a Hollywood American co-production that took elements of Chinese mythology and history and put Matt Damon in them. Mm -hmm. And you get this sort of mishmash of intentions and cultures that, that is weak tea for everyone involved. And the fact that this is a it's not just a, a Chinese. I mean, this book is translated. The version I will read will have been translated from Chinese. Mm-hmm. This is the book is the these books are the culmination of a Chinese national project to create science fiction literature. Um, how are they going to cast this? How are they going to culturally center it? How are they going to try to understand the world that produced it? Because science fiction at its best is often a reflection of the current moment or the current society that produced it, right? These are questions that they've asked, I'm sure. These it are does seem like they're in the right place, asked. though, right? They're in the right place to do it because Netflix has kind of started to teach at least American audiences, I think, and Western mm-hmm. audiences to embrace foreign language culture mm-hmm. in a way that I don't know necessarily that they had before. I know that I'm probably watching more foreign language television now via Netflix than I ever have in my life. And, and Amazon. I, am, I mean, I, yeah, I, I'm, but I'm, I'm like readily thing. like just dialing up like, okay, what's the next Money Heist style like? thing that I'll watch it from any country like what's the what's the crime show from this country yeah I don't care and, and yeah I, I I this week I've been watching a show on Amazon Prime called Tokyo Girl that's basically like a rom-com set in contemporary Tokyo and it's totally fascinating because it's a rom-com but it is profoundly not an American one so it, right. it's 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 interesting on a number of levels so yeah but the big but being and this is where you know a lot of the the hot takery came from that particular kind of needle threading of like being culturally sensitive, being sensitive to the the times, the audience, the moment, the material, those are the criticisms that were that is stuck really hard on those guys mm. from you know from their treatment of of women, of gender, of the end of the story. <laughs> and you know, I think they're 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 big boys. They're certainly well paid. They're they're prepared for that criticism. They sure. know it's coming. But you know, that is going to be, that's going to be a part of this project, whether they want it to be or not. This is a really difficult question and ultimately pretty pointless. But let's just say you are those guys. God. So first of all, I'm going to end the Zoom and go have a nice conversation <laughs> over the, the island in my kitchen, my fancy <laughs> kitchen with my wife, Amanda Pete. I thought you were going to say the island that you own. <laughs> it, uh, the kitchen is on the island that I own. I will 
help her make the marinade for tonight's chicken That's, feast. Yeah, I was going to say that that I'm actually cooking my baked potatoes on David Benioff's <laughs> island. And that's the indirect heat. Um, do you think that... So it's been uh, what, a, a full year since the end of Game of Thrones. More than a year since mm-hmm. the end of Game of Thrones. So they would have been done that a little while before that. They knew they were going to be done that even longer before that. And then since then, like you said, Confederate and the Star Wars projects have kind of come and gone. And they've signed this deal with Netflix, and but yet have to have yet to release anything. Would it have been a little bit not smarter, but would you rather have come out of Game of Thrones and then gone and made something like small and like palate cleansing, like a like something like Twenty Fifth Hour or yeah, even I mean, City of Thieves is pretty epic in its own right, but Benioff's novel City of Thieves like adapt that or do something that was just like Thrones is over. Here's like something completely different. So like, should they have taken a year to make an album with one of the guys in the national in secret? Yes. Like, did we want their folk record? Yes. Their folklore? Yes. Andy, I can always count on you. Should, should Benioff uh, and Weiss have dropped folklore in the middle of the night? It seems to me, what's that quote you guys are always saying from the movie I've never seen was the action, the juice. What is the that? action is the juice. You've never seen heat. Oh yeah. It's heat. Sorry, yeah. for you know, I haven't seen heats in so long that in my mind that you were quoting Den of Thieves. <laughs> I, I have seen. Wow. Um, <laughs> Kaya, keep that in. I got nothing to be ashamed of. I'm a I'm a grade A chicken cook. Um, I I would imagine it would be well. The first thing is Netflix didn't sign them to a nine figure deal to make um, one show a mumblecore comedy for a year. They just, that's not what they're there for. Yeah. Um, So that would be a tough sell. Two, I do think that there must be some element of the action being the juice for these guys, you know? For as much as they wanted to have their lives back and live at home and not live in in Belfast uh, and be shuttling back and forth and working the hours that they were working at the scale they were working at, that is how they've learned to work, you know? Better than maybe anyone else in TV. And and they're, they're, you know, uh, line producers and production designers, like that's the scale which they're comfortable working. So I think I would have been surprised um, on a human level. I think it would make sense to kind of chill and reset, but maybe it's also worth thinking about that their work on Game of Thrones finished, as you said, a year ago, maybe longer. Um, they've been itching to do something different. So this has clearly been marinating for a while. Netflix announced it, but we have no idea where it is in its development or where it even could be. So sure it may feel like they're jumping from one high powered moving train to another, but there there's been a lot of downtime. Should we keep the, like just scrolling through the headlines vibe of this podcast going? I like how this is kind of Rogany where we're just like, Hey man, did you see this? And then like, we should have Kaya start calling up like YouTube videos and be like, check this guy out. I I guess I skis right into a wall. The last thing I'll say is I'm into this idea. I just want to Uh like fully commit to being pro because I'm excited to read this book. This seems really wild and cool. And we we have been saying repeatedly... Are you a hard I, sci-fi guy? Like, can you do that? No. Oh, no. Yeah. But See, I'm, I'm curious. Maybe either. I'll like it. Okay. But I'm interested. Um, I'm curious. I'm open. But uh, we've been talking about how TV is changing and becoming much more the blockbuster model. And we often talk about it as a negative. If, if it's just a fact... I want our biggest people on the biggest projects and I want mm-hmm. to see something I haven't seen before. And I would much rather 10 times out of 10 see Benioff and Weiss try to tackle this unfilmable Chinese sci-fi trilogy than see a quarter of a billion dollars spent on a Lord of the Rings show. 
And I'm saying that slight unseen. I'm just in terms of what is interesting to me okay. about taking advantage of the moment and the money that's out there to do it. That seems more interesting. Bigger swing. Right. Um, should we talk a little bit about some of the stuff that's been happening with TV production this week? Yeah, sure. And film production? As we were coming in to record, it was announced today that uh, Robert Pattinson, who is playing the Batman, has tested positive for COVID. Um, and obviously, like the most important thing is his health and the health of the people he comes in contact with. So we're not trying to make light of that at all. But I think it was notable that you know the Batman trailer came out. They went back into production to finish this film. As many places, not many, but I, I think we're seeing lots of news about productions mounting, whether it's in Canada, whether it's in on a smaller scale here, like they've been doing, I think people have been seeing uh, photos from the set of um, Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, which is shooting in LA, I believe, uh, with Bradley Cooper. Um, yeah, and you're just you're seeing a lot of stuff about it. I'm sure you, you have some insight into this. Um, this is actually, and we'll be talking about soccer in a minute, but it's it's been really interesting watching what's been happening with some of the football clubs in Europe because there were very few, if any, positive tests among players during the actual close the end of the season that they just conducted which just kind of concluded with the champions league and then as soon as guys went away to ibiza and greece and then came back we're seeing lots of a fair amount of notable possible po- positive tests including neymar who plays for psg what do you make of this i i is this going to be the kind of thing that throws the clamps on production and everything stops down again? Or is it going to be one of those, this is going to be our reality and we can't not make stuff? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, this is our reality, whether you work in movies or you work at an Amazon warehouse, like this is our life. Yeah, There is no cure. Um, in this country, there's very little attention to um, you know managing it in any real responsible way. So this is reality. At the same time, This strikes me as kind of, I don't want to say worst case because things can always get worse, but people were checking for this. You know what I mean? There's been a lot of, and and very anxious about something like this happening. It's not fair that the star of the movie, The Batman, uh, gets more attention for testing positive than a gaffer would, Yeah, but it is the world that we live in. And... There's been a lot of stuff this week as the NBA playoffs have continued about what a success the NBA bubble has been. And by all accounts, you know, in my own impression, it has been a success, primarily because the players aren't getting sick, right? And that's what people are paying attention to. There's been an assumption, I think, in production that the more attention, care, and money you throw at this, the more likely you are to be okay, which is kind of a very American way of looking at any problem, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff in production right now. I know that even as recently as a podcast or two ago, we were joking about how when things go back, but things are back. They're back, yeah. There are a lot of things back. And multi-camp sitcoms are filming here in LA right now. A ton of stuff is filming up in Vancouver right now. A lot of things in London and of course, other places around the world. And there were some stories this week about how like commercials that have been shooting, which don't have to get unions to like SAG and things, unions to agree to certain standards have been shooting pretty fast and loose. And someone who worked on a commercial in Texas recently died after mm. after contracting the virus. But again, it was the sense that it's this sort of cowboy stuff on the margins. But like the Jurassic Park sequel has been filming since spring under almost total lockdown conditions and seemingly pulling it off. The star of the movie getting it 
on like the fourth or fifth day back, mm-hmm. it's going to send a total chill through everybody. And, and, and it should, you know, that you cannot, no matter what you throw at it, you cannot guarantee it. And particularly, I am sure that they were following rigorous protocols. I have no doubt about that. It's possible, I don't know anything about him personally, that it was Robert Pattinson out? You know, did did he go, did he have a backyard dinner party or something? Did he not wear a mask once? I mean, we don't, yeah. we don't know. But regardless of whether he had it and brought it to set, the chill that goes through everybody is he got it somewhere on set, right? Or passed it to people on set. And then, and then what do you do? And so all of I mean, this- I essentially, uh, would, you would have to shut down production for two weeks, wouldn't you? At least- I think so. To clear every, you have to re-quarantine the product. I mean, I, I have no idea. I will say yeah. one thing. You brought the NBA lockout, or the NBA lockout, the uh, the NBA bubble. And this week in the New York Times, and Mark Stein, who's a, one of the basketball writers mm-hmm. of the New York Times, has been writing his newsletter from Orlando where he's been covering the bubble. And Mark Stein has been in the bubble for know, 40, 50 days or something. And he's leaving and another New York Times writer is coming to take over his spot. And he was, you know, it was a really good piece. He's talking about how even though he had a lot of issues with being there, that he was already like getting nostalgic for it before he'd even left. Mm-hmm. But he said, he was talking about how he's lost 12 pounds because of like just kind of getting bored of eating like the what food they have there. He was talking about like the just mental toll of like doing the same thing every single day, which everybody is kind of experiencing, I think, in, in their their own lives. And I was thinking about this in relationship to film and TV production, because we, we've talked to some actors and some some showrunners and some filmmakers who have said, like, the new reality is that, like, I can't go see my kids. I can't fly home on the weekends. If I'm going yeah. to Canada to shoot something, whether I have, I'm fifth on the call sheet or first on the call sheet, it's kind of the same time commitment. You know, I can't disappear for three weeks and come back mm-hmm. because that adds on another quarantine period. So this is going to be really complicated for 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 these productions to pull off. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Pattinson news, while very sad, is is the first, not the last of these stories. I agree. And I do think that actors will just say no. There, there, you know, there are plenty of actors who are just going to say, no, that's not worth it to me and my family, especially actors at the top of the food chain who can afford to say no to a, a part. You know, right. it's the working actors who are having to say goodbye to their, their workaday kind of character actors who are saying goodbye to their families and moving to Canada for a while. Um, and, and, and what you said is exactly accurate and happening. I don't think he'd mind me saying, you know, I was, I was texting with Brian Garrity, one of the stars of Briar Patch, and he was mm-hmm. set to be in a David E. Kelly show that was going to film back in Albuquerque. And they reworked it, and he's filming it right now in Vancouver. And he's there for five months. He just lives in Vancouver. He cannot leave Canada. And that's yeah, fine. Can he just stay there? Because he might want can, to. Can I, can I go too? No, I know. It's hard to sort of say it that way. But, you know, as the, he was, what was he? Uh, fourth on our call sheet mm-hmm. on Briar Patch. And we were neighbors. Uh, and when he wasn't needed, he, yeah, he flew home. I'd, I'd see him on the plane coming back to LA. Or you know, he drove a truck like back to LA. Like that's just part of the deal. And it's a pretty good part of the deal mm-hmm. if you're not carrying the whole thing. So, I keep saying the word, but that that's the vibe I'm getting is that it's just kind of it, people thought this could happen. They were afraid of it happening, but it's chilling. Well, it'll be really it'll be fascinating to see where we are next year, not only on a obviously like on a society level, but just to see how this this new reality shapes, you know, the pipeline of stuff getting to screens and whether or not that will impact the bottom lines of these streaming services that we've been chronicling for a while. So 
definitely something to keep our eye on. Uh, we'll take a quick break and we come back. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about Ted Lasso, All or Nothing, and The Boys. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Heineken. It is going to be hot this Labor Day weekend. I will be headed outside to the extent that I can handle it safely, not only because trying to keep socially distant, but also trying to keep socially distant from the sun, which is apparently like five feet from the Earth's crust here in California. But, you know, if I can get a little backyard action going, or even if I'm just chilling in the living room with the AC on, I'm going to enjoy the always seasonal Heineken Original Lager. It's just like, it's the go-to beer. It's the clutch beer. It's the, when you think of the word beer, what do you think of? And you see that green bottle, right? Maybe a little condensation on it because it's getting, you know, a little sweaty after the fridge, but whatever, man. I'm sweaty because it's 100 degrees. Heineken Original Lager is made with natural ingredients with pure malt and their famous A-yeast, makes Heineken an all-season, all-the-time kind of beer. Savor the last days of summer with an ice-cold, crisp Heineken. The perfect way to cap the last moments of the summer. Pick up a pack or have it delivered this Labor Day weekend and drink responsibly. All right, Andy, we are back. Let's talk a little bit about Ted Lasso and All or Nothing. Now, this is something that... Ted Lasso is a show. It's uh, Jason Sudeikis' comedy on Apple TV. From the most unlikely of circumstances. I think most people probably had relatively low expectations or at least a real sense of, are you kidding me? About Ted Lasso. And here's why. Ted Lasso is a character that was created as an advertising module for the Premier League, the the English top division of soccer. And when you would see ads on NBC for the Premier League, they would feature this guy, Ted Lasso, who is an American sports coach, a football coach from America, who had gone to England and become a manager there, a, a, a soccer manager. And it was all basically based on the lost in translation, you know, cultural divide between England and America and how, you know, American sports would talk about stuff like this. But in England, you say, oh, I'll have a tea cozy, you know, that kind of thing. And it was, they were pretty funny as commercials for the Premier League go. But I was never like, God, what's what's going on with Lasso? And, and can we get more? And... I think because, somewhat because I was coming from a very low expectation, and also because in our Facebook group on Twitter, like I feel like this was a show that many people were like, please talk about this show, please check it out. I, I, I adore this thing. It's been renewed for a second season. It's been received very warmly. I like it. It's very, very, very soothing. It is the thing that very rarely comes along anymore which is an authentically authentically like kind-hearted show in in, mm-hmm. in in at the end of the day and it's pretty i i find it pretty funny now i have a much larger thing to say about this which is not ted lasso's fault but i know that you somewhat disagree with me in terms of your your mileage on ted lasso yeah i mean i would say that it's probably the best secondary piece of content created from a series of sports themed commercials probably it's tied with terry tate office linebacker in that regard which still didn't get a fair shot i think yeah i think it went to i think it went to pilot yeah um yeah it's just not for me yeah you know you're 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 like at this point i think it's fair to say it's a challenge to get you back once it's lost you right well, we're going to talk about the boys, so it's not impossible. It's not impossible, and, and it's and it, and it and in fact, there's some similarities because the thing that kept me 
watching, and I think Ted Lasso to the degree that I watched it, which was not past the first episode, but that, you know, that I don't, I'm not flipping over my table being like, you've, you've completely lost it. You don't deserve my chicken recipes <laughs> is that there, there's a lot of steady, there are a lot of steady hands on the steering wheel here. You know, mm-hmm. that this is Sudeikis, who's obviously a veteran performer and writer in his own right. And Bill Lawrence, who created Scrubs yeah. and Cougar Town and, and other beloved, uh, single cam comedies so it's well done it kind of i think it the bar that's set for a show like this is this is justifying its existence like all the good intention of ip or commercials or character or actors who want to do stuff you kind of got to make the sale in the first episode right? right beyond the this could this to prove it has reason to exist and for me it made it back to the starting point like it did all that work in the first episode to be like here's why we're going to exist going forward and i and i left it thinking fine fine it didn't leave me in a place of i can't wait to know more about the adventures of coach lasso in in old blighty but i want you to go back to the the, the first thing you said which i think speaks to the myriad ways people use television in 2020 which is that you found it soothing and yeah, I found who so- am I to get in front and wave anyone's? So I mean, uh, for what it's worth, I I definitely feel like it, whether or not it was shot as a pilot or shot like they were just looking at your sea legs, I think it improves from its first episode. The first episode I thought was like charming, and then I found like n- subsequent episodes to be pretty entertaining. I completely get it. I don't think that you're like let's dial up a sitcom for fun, and that's just the difference between the two of us, and that's totally fine. I, it was interesting. I've gotten about halfway through the season, and I'm and and I and I do like it. But right around episode three, or like while I was getting into the first season, I noticed that at least so far, there was not much soccer, and there was not much like practical what it would be like to be doing this job in England with this club. And it's very unclear. It's like the club has won the Champions League in the past, which would be like a Barcelona does that or a Manchester United does that. But the club seems to be run by like three people and like six people work there. And it's so they're really playing a little fast and loose with. And it's annoying because I hate being like, actually, in, in the British football system, it would work like this. But right when I was starting to have like, this is a cool workplace comedy. It's just the mm-hmm. workplace is not actually where it's set. I started watching All or Nothing on Amazon. Now, All or Nothing is basically Amazon's hard knocks. It's their behind-the-scenes sports doc thing. And they've done seasons about Manchester City. Uh, they've done a, a season on Borussia Dortmund, which is a German club. This year, they did Tottenham. And Tottenham is kind of like... I'm going to get get trouble with Tottenham fans, but like the underdog stepbrother London team. Um, yeah. You know, if Arsenal... I think is probably the biggest London side and Chelsea certainly in the last 15 years has won the most Tottenham is kind of like, they're always just almost there. And they were really, really almost there. They got to the champions league final last year. They lost to Liverpool. They had a really good coach, this guy, Maurizio Pochettino. And there was something was sort of off after the champions league. And what happens is really early on in this just concluded season, Pochettino gets fired and they bring in this guy, Jose Mourinho. Do you know who that is? I do. Yes. Who is sort of like the dark prince of football management and one of the best TV characters I've seen on a screen in 2020. I Having an unfiltered, a little out past his prime, feisty as fuck Jose Mourinho on screen 
even if most of the All or Nothing episodes comprise our drone shots and really cool highlights of Tottenham matches that I remember already because they were only three months ago, it is so fucking fun to watch the inner workings of a football club and the way the, the TV drama that Jose provides on a shot to shot, scene to scene basis kind of like dwarfs anything else that I've, I'm watching right now. And it, it is, it, if you follow Tottenham, you probably would just be like, this is not actually how it happened. And this is not how like people received this information at the time. But it really made me feel the absence of the football in Lasso. Also, one last thing on All or Nothing. Okay. Narrated. By Tom Hardy. That's what I was going to ask you about. It says, all or nothing, Tottenham. And in the same title card, the title card, it says, narrated by Tom Hardy. And you don't ever see Tom Hardy. And I guess Tom Hardy might be a Tottenham fan or whatever. What sort of facial covering did he wear for the recording? I I have now passed through the Rubicon where I don't know if Tom Hardy is doing a voice when he's just being Tom Hardy. Because there are some times... When he's narrating and he's just like, Harry Kane, the England captain, the captain's captain, the man's man. And I'm like, are you doing Taboo Island? (laughs) Are you fucking talking about the poor in Locke? What is happening right now? And you just, you imagine him sitting there watching footage and doing takes of VO with the Bane mask on. Like Tom Hardy is now, there is no normal Tom Hardy, even if he is just being paid to speak like Tom Hardy. I don't even know if it's really Tom Hardy. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. So you've had my, you had my interest. Now you have my attention, but I do want to circle back on the pitch. Soccer reference to Ted Lasso, Mm -hmm. because as we're talking about it, 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 part of the, the, the odd feeling I think about it, it's, it's not just its provenance that it was an NBC sports advertising character turned into a show. Mm-hmm. It's also finding it on your Apple TV Plus lineup. And it made me think that one of the things that's happening that we're not fully tracking is the way that the emergence of streaming services as the dominant TV form of our time or TV medium of our time allows us to watch TV as an idea change in real time as entire genres of shows are basically called up like the rapture or vanished like the leftovers. And what I mean is, in the case of Ted Lasso, the heartwarming but for grown-ups single-camera comedy, which was network comedy for Mm -hmm. the 10 years post The Office, that's all streaming now, right? So you have Ted Lasso on Apple. Peacock has Rutherford Falls coming, which is the new Mike Schur show partnered with Ed Helms. Peacock also has the new Tina Fey show with Ted Danson. Um, the, that's the one about a mayor, right? The mayor of LA show that was initially going to be a 30 Rock spinoff with Jack Donaghy, and then they refitted it. Um, the Mindy Kaling show, Never Have I Ever, is on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've started to see these genres kind of get beamed to the cloud before. Like in the last few years when Netflix was just like, oh, the reality TV competition food style business, we're just going to take that now. Mm-hmm. And they did. Does it change the relationship to these shows? And we we have you know we can't do anything but guess right now because we don't have the, the data. We don't know how people are engaging with these shows at all. But when I think about something like our pal Shea Serrano doing these you know hilarious and heartfelt PDF self published PDFs about shows like The Office and about Scrubs, 
are we losing something here with these shows leaving the broadcast space and just sort of retreating to their corners? Or is this the same argument we always have where we miss all being able to talk about the same thing at the same time? That's a really good question. You know, I I, I think that there are still probably sitcoms on broadcast television that do quite well. I don't know. And if I they, think you watch all of them. Superstore. <laughs> I don't think that they necessarily. Yeah, Superstore is a really good example of this. Superstore, think, Young Sheldon, Old Sheldon, all of them. I, but I could see Superstore living. If, if Superstore started today and it, it would just be a Peacock show, wouldn't it? I mean, I think if anything started today, it would more likely than not be on whatever companies that it that owns its streaming service. Yeah, right. So it is interesting to think about whole layers of TV. But the thing is, is that I don't feel like those shows are leaving behind a solid landscape of broadcast television. Like broadcast no. television just seems pockmarked and confusing and antiquated as an experience and as like there nobody is putting on programming on broadcast tv even when there's like a show like uh i think it's evil that's on cbs that people are really fond of or whatever yeah, the or, king the kings did that right yeah the, you'll, the, and, the, and it'll just be like this show's really good but i'm like i didn't just do the better version of it on cbs all access you know what i mean I, like yeah i i think that maybe we, my question is unanswerable right now We'll see what audiences want. And, you know, obviously this form, this style of show, something that is heartwarming and bingeable uh, and familiar and in, in key ways, not, I don't mean that pejoratively, that's something that every one of these services wants in their arsenal. No question. It makes sense. But the especially interesting part about your answer is, especially this year, but honestly, it would be this way without a pandemic is what, it, what even is broadcast right now? And, and the thing I, I, I wanted to point to is all over LA, well, at least on the the one route that I drive in LA during a <laughs> partial lockdown. Yeah, I see it everywhere. Doesn't everybody? Yeah, from Playa um, Vista to <laughs> to Boyle Heights. They're 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 post they're uh, big billboards up for the show LA's Finest. Yeah, which is the Gabrielle like weirdly, Union Jessica Alba show that was on Spectrum, right? That, that's what I wanted to say. It is somehow in a convoluted way, Bad Boys expanded universe adjacent. But okay, I think but it was a big pitch. And then it was it, the the winning bidder for it was Sp- Time Warner Cable, which is now Spectrum, right? Who wanted to get into the mix, and so it was a Spectrum original, um, and existed. And then now their billboards, because now it's moved to Fox for this year, precisely because Fox is like, we don't have shows. What can we do? Because nothing's in nothing. You know, all the production got interrupted. Mm-hmm. Super smart play by Fox. But for me, the weirdest thing is. Shouldn't this always have been a Fox show? Those are big stars in a cop show. Like, mm-hmm. it's what a bizarre universe that really isn't currently built to support what audiences want. It's really just built to feed into these increasingly walled off corporate content ecosystems. Like, yeah. when Gabrielle Union and Jessica Alba were like, we're going to make a cop show, I don't think either of them were like, and what we really want to do is be the canary in the content coal mine for Spectrum. Like, that wasn't what they were thinking, right? They were like, we're going to make a TV show because people like us and it'll be fun to be watched by people. Now, I'm sure they're grateful for the work and everyone who worked on the show, I'm sure, is doing their best. And maybe they're diehard fans who, who you know, switched from Pat Kieran in, in the morning and found Ellie's Finest in the evening. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. just, it just seems so counterintuitive. This should have been a Fox show. Like, what are we doing? Why are we hiding well, stuff? When people? you watch Ted Lasso, and and Ted Lasso actually does a pretty effective job of like getting off the ground and and introducing six to eight characters pretty quickly, pretty fleet-footedly. 
and gracefully and being like, oh, hey, here's the dynamics between all these different pairs of people. And it's like, oh, maybe there's a will they, won't they here. But she's currently, you know, Juno Temple is pretty funny. And then last night I was watching an episode and it's like Juno Temple just makes a fingering joke in the middle of like a very vanilla sitcom setup of like a charity dinner. And you've seen that charity dinner 20 times if you've watched sitcoms over the last right. 20 years. And this one is just a little bit more R-rated or hard PG-13 rated. And I guess I prefer it that way. I, I don't really have any kind of nostalgia or ache for yeah. like, those things being on TV, especially I, it, if they're going to be done well. It's not that I want them to be on TV. It's just that, look, Chris, you know me for a long time and our listeners know me. And I'm always, I've always been throughout my career a fighter for the little guy. You know what I mean? Ever since yeah. I grew up in Scranton, I have, I've, 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 I've put the common man on my back. And sometimes the common man says, put me down. I didn't want you to pick me up. It's weird. And I say, look, today, today is, today is abs day. I got to do, I got to, I got to lift something. And I, it, it, but it is making me think that like, we are really overthinking this and it is all very overdetermined right now. And all the decision-making that, that leads to a show being in a certain place makes sense often from many perspectives, but not necessarily, not necessarily the perspective of the audience. So this Ed Helms show, Sight Unseen, you know, I know why Peacock wants it. I know why Mike Schur thought Peacock was probably a pretty good place for it. You know, he successfully beat the odds with a good place on NBC, but really he beat the odds because Netflix made a, you know, a unique mm -hmm. uh, co-financing deal to keep it alive. So he knows that this is the best chance for the show to, you know, maybe, maybe they gave him a two-season commitment. I don't even know the details, right? So it makes sense for him. It makes sense for Peacock. It makes sense for the Shinehart Wig Company. But does it make sense for the audience? I don't know. Like, I feel like the more people could find it and love it. I, I know that it's all crumbling, but I, I just... You know what, you're, kind of, I, you know what it, I think you're reacting to? It's where my head is at right now. I think that the, the, a show like the, the Good Place, if it's on NBC, there is a sort of thrill and danger and tension derived from yeah. the surprise or the, the you're titillated by the fact that they can get something so maybe, I guess, intellectually stimulating on NBC on Thursday night at 8.30 p.m. or whenever it was on. That they yeah, are a, pushing, they're pushing the boundaries. That they're like playing in the margins and they're saying, this is what we can put on this platform at this time. And we're going to like, really, we're going to confront these people with philosophical ideas that have never been in a sitcom before. But does that challenge still exist? Does that tension no, it, still exist? Look, if it's just part of a, if it's just a tile on your streaming service. And The Good Place would have been canceled after one season if it hadn't been going straight to Netflix. Like, that's just true. You know what I mean? It, it, it is successful and talked about and held up as a crown jewel of universal. But how different blah, 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 would The Good Place have been if it had just been a Netflix show? I, I don't know if it would have been. I don't yeah. know because because the best case scenarios for a lot of shows, uh, whether it's what happened with Breaking Bad a decade ago, whether it's what happened with The Good Place over the last few years, or with a large gap in between, it's happening right now where people are like years later being like, hey, Halt and Catch Fire was really good. Yeah. And now it's in the first page of Netflix and probably, I don't know, more people are watching it by a factor of four or five. Like the best, the best case examples are ones where you got a little bit from both both categories, right? I don't know. Now we're now we're just kind of circling the same drain that we've been circling. Well, no, but um, I think we finally got to the interesting part, which is like 
what made shows good is the fact that they were a little transgressive within the context mm -hmm. of the platform that they were on. If you're going to have a show, and Apple TV is, in some ways, I'm sure they have as many rules as NBC does in terms of what they do and don't want on their screens. But when you watch Ted Lasso and the, and the kind of, the charge you get is like, ooh, he said the F word, you know? Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't have been able to do that if this was just on NBC. It's the same thing with like, then if you have the good place on Apple TV or Peacock or Netflix, do you ever get the fork joke? Do you ever get forking? That was oh. the whole thing. You know what I mean? Well, that's that's the Kimmy Schmidt thing, which is yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons why I think that show personally never quite landed to the degree that um, 30 Rock did. I mean, they're very different projects, but all the comedy people you know, they they can and they will complain about how um, standards shifted. And by the time they were making these shows that we love, like Parks and Rec or 30 Rock, they had to be 21 minutes and 20 seconds or something yeah. long. And God knows how many darlings they had to kill to get down to that length. Soon as they got to Netflix with Kimmy Schmidt, episodes started going 25, 28, 32 mm -hmm. minutes. Feels different. It's a different yeah. thing. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it's a different size box and maybe it's not necessarily the right box. So... It, it, it's interesting as everyone adjusts to it. I'm not sure what the answer is, but. So we're talking about Ted Lasso, which feels like a show that was made for one world, but is on in a new one. And it, and mm. I and one that, you know, I think our, our listeners like that you didn't love that I like. The Boys, which comes back tonight for the second season and which, you know, in the murky metrics of streaming seems to be a hit. Yeah. For the most part. Without question. Is a show that I feel like was made with the old wisdom of the network era and of the cable TV era, but like supercharged for streaming in a variety yep. of different ways. Talk about your recent love affair with this show. So we, we touched on it a little bit uh, last week with a crossover pod with a big picture, but I'm going to repeat myself here because I don't know if I, I want to make sure I want to, I want to put all the thoughts in one place. Old takes which, exposed. Let's go. So, the Boys premiered, season one premiered last year. As Chris said, it seems to have been, in the opaque world of streaming, it seems to have been quite a big hit. It immediately was given a, an additional two-season renewal. It is an adaptation of a comic book by Garth Ennis and Derek Robertson. Garth Ennis is familiar to comic book fans for years of, I'm going to use the word you just used, very in-your-face transgressive storytelling. He's not your back. Um, well, he he is and he isn't, and that's kind of what I want to talk about. But um, he's particularly... He would be he would be familiar to people who don't read comic books because he wrote what many people, including myself, think is the definitive Punisher story of the last few years, which was used basically picked over for parts by the movie and to some degree the TV show. He also created Preacher, which just ended its run on AMC. And there's a thing that he does that I find okay in comic books that I find tougher a tougher hang once it's in real life, which is his whole thing is like everybody's a hypocrite. Fuck society to a degree. Everything's in play. Push all the chips into the table with like hyper cynicism, hyper violence. Um, and, you know, that's how you end up with Preacher, with a character who tries to commit suicide with a shotgun, fails to kill himself, and then has the character, has the name of Arseface for mm -hmm. 70 issues of a comic book. Right. Lest you forget. So The Boys, which was created in the comic form 10 years ago, was almost like his, his, Masterpiece. Ur Urtext, yeah. Where it's about a world where there is a super, a super team called the Seven, but they are also sponsored by, bought, paid for, and controlled by a multinational corporation. 
and uh, Superman is a fascist mass murderer and Wonder Woman is complicit and Aquaman is an asshole, et cetera, et cetera. And the titular boys are a group of screw ups and lunkheads and, you know, formerly experimented on war criminals who are among the only people who see the truth of this society and are trying to bring down the Justice League, basically. Yeah, right. Right. Um, so this was catnip, obviously, to people who wanted to make a comic book show or movie, but wanted to do it different. So it was going to be a movie, then it was going to be a Cinemax show, um, and then uh, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg got involved and it went to Amazon. I texted Chris. I talked about this in the big picture. I, I texted Chris last week. I made it 10 minutes into the first episode and I and I wrote, honestly, a, a real some of my best writing in years, said the person who hasn't written in that format in, in the non-script form in years, saying why I couldn't do this. Hyperviolence, blood, cynicism, the winking. I, it was just too much for me. But I didn't turn it off. And then I didn't mind when the second episode started. And within two or three days, I'd watched the whole season and was begging Amazon for another hit for season two, which I started as well. The show's really good. The show's really good. And speaking to, and, and we'll get into why, the many reasons why, and the many things we like about the show, and hopefully we'll continue to talk about the season two going forward. We will, yeah. But I just feel like it's, as you were saying, when you set this up, Chris, it's like hyper everything in a way that suits streaming and suits people who want to watch something grown up or buzzy or shocking. And it's all of those things. But the guy in charge, person I've never met, we've never talked about, although it'd be great to have him on the show sometime, uh, a guy named Eric Kripke, who created the show Supernatural, which I believe is just finishing its 37th season. It's actually, um, I think the show itself is actually wrapping its yeah. final episodes in Vancouver. It, but after many, many, over And will live forever seasons. as the thing that is on before basketball on TNT for the rest of my life. <laughs> then also uh, made a show um, called uh, Timeless. A show called Revolution that lasted a short time on NBC as well. Mm -hmm. The point being, don't know the man, but he seems to know how to make hour-long TV. And what carried me past the, the first blush of, of blood splatter was the way the scenes rolled into each other, was the way the characters were introduced, was the way, and this is just, this is like 101 stuff, right? Where like a character will walk into a room and one character will say, wait, you didn't tell him about the thing? And the mm -hmm. character who didn't tell him will just look and then we'll cut to the person who didn't get told. And it's like, this isn't that complicated. And then later you pull back after suddenly you've watched five episodes and you're like, actually, it's very complicated. There are like 15 main characters and a whole world to introduce and a, a, a relatively smooth transition of we are going to shock you with this comic content to, you know, we can actually do some things here. We can soften this edge. We can build up this emotional component and we can end up with something that to my mind, comic book fans may disagree, is better than the source material. Mm -hmm. And I'm impressed on a storytelling level because it's super fun to watch, but I'm really impressed on a, on a craft level. Yeah, they also have like half a dozen really, really good performances going on this show. Yeah, they do. And not necessarily ones that I would expect. Carl Urban is kind of a layout if you're going to be like, guess what? You're like a anti-hero mercenary who is like the lone voice of reason in the world of craziness that's all believing that the seven are the right, you know, the seven are good people. And you're you're this gross, you know, profane mess of a of a merc going after them. His He's, character choice is is creatine Michael Caine. 
Yeah, he looks he's great. But it's the one if the people who are dotted around him and the people who just sort of expand out until the very margins of the show like are pretty uniformly great and all seem to be reading from the same hymn book. Like often yeah. when we do rewatchables, we'll talk about the guy in a movie or the the woman in a movie who thought that they were the star. Like they didn't, they were not informed that they're not in the movie for that much or something. And they go, they go way over the top or they, mm -hmm. they think that they're tonally doing something totally different. Everybody involved in this seems to get it. They're like, yeah, this show might have a black heart, you know? And I almost appreciate how black hearted the show is in a lot of ways. And I yeah. appreciate how blood splattered it is because I think for the most part, it earns it, you know? Yeah. I mean, first of all, as you said, they're having a lot of fun and not in the sense of like, we're doing the Judd Apatow sixth take, having a laugh bit. Like, they're all on board on what the show can and should be and they're enjoying it. And that is contagious. Um, I'm sure it's fun on set, but it's really contagious to watch. So you mentioned Carl Urban, but a, a truly great actor who I've loved for a long time, it's great to see him in the role like this, is Anthony Starr, who is the star of Banshee, who plays the, the Superman analog Homelander Someone like Chase Crawford, who is playing very much against, I think, his mm -hmm. his looks and just general Q rating from Gossip Girl. He's lampooning a, a public image that is only really known from Gossip Girl fans, but yes. it, it still works. Yeah. Aaron Moriarty, who plays um, the in, in many ways one of the, the leads of the show, right? Starlight, who starts yeah. out as kind of a believing everything and quickly is disabused of those notions. Laz Alonzo is one of the boys. Um, and then in season two, our old pal Aya Cash joins. There's a, I, I liked what you said about everyone being in this on the same, reading from the same hymn book. It's really, really contagious. And what's been fun about the show, I think, as it's developed from season one to season two and made, I, I did the thing that people do often, like where after I finished the season, I was like, oh, what's different? Because I did not read the comic book past yeah, the right. first issue. They changed a lot. And I think all those changes seem really, really smart structurally and also for the longer run of the show. I noticed that the show started to get a little more confident in the satire. It did a good job in the beginning of foregrounding some of the emotional things with Jack Quaid, who we didn't mention, Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid's kid. Very rare to see a kid who literally looks like both of his parents yeah. in such a full and complete way, but yeah. shouts to Jack, he's really good. Um, and he's going to be, Jack, he's in the the Scream reboot, right? Yeah, he's just announced as the star. Yeah, yeah so, so his character and Aaron Moriarty's character sort of form a, a kind of un, unexpected emotional backbone to the show. But as the season went on, they started to get a little more comfortable with the satire and the media commentary to the point where when the second season kicks off, it kicks off tonight, there's a lot more like this is found footage. This is the Vought News Network broadcast. This mm -hmm. is the behind the scenes of the behind the scenes. And it's the kind of swagger that if it had led with that, you'd be like, this is beyond inside baseball. This is, you know, they're amusing themselves. Yeah. I love that they did the hard work of being like, here's why you should care. Everyone, no matter how crazy or how much they curse, uh, we're going to show you why they actually, what's broken inside of them. Again, sure. TV 101. And now they're going to so And I think that those first it. couple of episodes can be a little bit of a chore because of that. And then Absolutely. The, midway through that first season, it just takes off. They are doing something really interesting this season. I thought we could end on this note, which is that Amazon's dropping the first three episodes and then they're going weekly. So watch this space because I think that only allows shows like ours to chronicle it in a like mm -hmm. slightly more organized fashion. And uh, I think that they know what they have on their hands if they're doing it this way because they they know 
maybe this is a show that can pick up steam as it goes along rather than just shooting it into people's jugular on a Thursday night. Yeah, it, it, it's it's maybe it's the network pacing um, that it's also these has. episodes are a full often more than an hour. So and it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother you. But I do think that that was like a challenge watching it the, when it first came out. Sure. And I was like six weeks behind the buzz on it. So I was like, okay, I got to catch up with the boys. And I was like, Jesus, I have like uh, like 12 hours of television to watch no, to do this. Eight. Eight, right. Oh, with Sorry. the new ones. But th- I love that there are only eight episodes in the yeah. season. I think there are 10 in the second season. I think that that, that speaks to, again, and it, maybe we'll talk to him about it at some point, but like just a skill set that, that Eric Kripke has, which is playing the long game, which is something that has fallen out of favor in TV in general. And it's a skill that I think because of that, not many people have as we steer towards more anthologized shows or one season wonders or, or whatever. This show has legs and it certainly has a universe that it could continue to build on or draw from even after these boys or these members of the seven who get replaced constantly move on. And it is kind of fun, as we often say, when you find a show that is enjoyable to know that it's going to be around for a minute. And they seem to have, they seem to know how to do it. The last thing to say about that is shot in Toronto, doubling for New York. Great job. Great job, production designer. Yeah. It does not look Toronto cheap. Yeah. Which is a thing. So you want to do the first three episodes on? Well, actually, Monday we have a mailbag, right? And so then so, yeah, next send in questions. Thursday, and you know, we, we'll record our mailbag tomorrow, but we have, we have a bunch of questions. Feel free to send more in. And then so Monday will be mailbag, Labor Day weekend, and then Thursday we'll talk about the first three episodes of... Next of Thursday, boys. first three episodes of The Boys. Following Monday, we could probably hit the fourth episode. And the following Thursday, I think we'll have another uh, special Boys-centric segment of the pod. We'll have a special guest. So yeah. get on board. It's fun. Uh, it's fun Greenwald, show. great talking to you today. I, I feel like we worked out some stuff, but we still have some work work to do. No, I feel connected um, to you. I feel like I feel like I needed just to get it off my chest. Could you take a picture of your pantry? Like I just, I just want to know what you're working with. You know what I mean? Send me a pantry selfie. I'm not going to let you pantry shame me. Post it on Instagram, you coward. Guys, have a nice Labor Day weekend. <laughs>